Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, November the 25th, 2022, otherwise known as Black Friday, the celebration post-Thanksgiving of American capitalism, free market, insane capitalism, and appropriately enough for us to celebrate American capitalism, we're going back to Russian communism uh, today on the show. We did a show a couple of uh, months ago with the great photographer Arthur Grace, who has a new book out on photographing communism. Grace spent quite a lot of the 70s and 80s in Eastern Europe and, and, and the old Soviet Union. So he knows a thing or two about it. He spent his time carrying his camera and photographing images of the old Soviet Union and its Eastern Bloc satellites. Today, we're returning to the Soviet Union of the 1970s, but an imaginary one um, written about by my uh, guest today, Ray Meadows, who's one of America's finest young journalists, I hope she won't, uh, not journalist, novelist, I hope she won't be insulted when I call her young. Uh, she has a new book out, it's out next week, it's called Winterland, and it's about the Soviet Union of the 1970s. Ray is joining us from the closest thing to the old Soviet Union, the People's Republic of Brooklyn, just by New York City, which is inhabited by novelists like Ray Meadows. Uh, Ray, you're not taking it personally that I call you a young novelist. Do you oh, think of yourself I'm as thrilled. young? No, I do not think of myself as young, but I'm thrilled that you would call me that. Well, you're not you. as old as I am. Um, <laughs> congratulations on the new book. Um, I've been looking through it. It's very, uh, very inspiring, very interesting and dark, of course, in many ways, given that it, it's about the Soviet Union of the 1970s. Why did you choose to um, to write this book. It's quite different from a lot of your other books. It is. And I, you know, there were a few things that kind of came together for me uh, with this novel. You know, they say you should write a novel that only you can write. And for whatever that means, I do think this is a novel that only I could have written. It brought together a few of my obsessions, um, gymnastics being one of them, um, and an interest in the Soviet Union for most of my adult life. I've, I've had a kind of just an interest in it. Um, and also uh, I have a, I, I seem to be drawn to inhospitable landscapes and this is about as inhospitable as you get where this novel is set. Uh, yeah, I mean, town. it's in uh, Norilsk, which is still a place that outsiders can't uh, yeah. visit in, in Siberia, uh, known chillingly exactly. Uh, as um, one of the most polluted places on earth today. God knows what it was like in the 1970s. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it was, in a, it was a place that was kind of clawed out from the taiga by uh, forced labor. It was, it was uninhabitable then. And, and even now, I mean, it's a city of 175,000 people, but it still seems uninhabitable given the uh, the temperature and the long right. ones. We have a phrase, uh, in the middle of nowhere. This place, Norilsk, really is in the middle of nowhere, right? Slap bang yeah. in the middle of Siberia. A place, as you suggest, of forced labor. I mean, could we call it slavery, Ray? Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, it, most definitely. Um, that's what it was. And, and it's kind of incredible. The numbers are, um, as you know, 
there's a huge range of numbers given that what 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 was reported on by the Soviets is probably on the low end, and and what is reported by uh, people who were within this system of the the Gulag uh, forced labor camps. Um, but we're talking about you know 20 million people who passed within this system at some point uh, in the Soviet Union. So it's I think you can't really talk about the Soviet Union without including uh, to the gulag in those discussions because it really is a, a big part of, of the history. And I would say of modern Russia as well. Yeah, I, I was in Kazakhstan last year. I visited oh, wow. uh, one of the gulag. I mean, it's obviously still not open, but it was very chilling. So the book is set in the Soviet Union. In 1970, uh, 1973, uh, there was something called the Soviet Economic Reforms, not really very reformist. Tell us about the Soviet Union in 1973. Was this one of the the low points? Was it darkest before dawn? You know, I do think that there, at this point in the, in the 70s, by the time you, you reach the 70s and you have Brezhnev in power, it, it really was, uh, it was a gray time. Um, I think the idealism if any remained was was losing all steam as far as idealism for communism and it really was a system that people had to just adapt to um, this system where it was there was a lot of scarcity there was uh, a lot of authoritarian um ideas and and the the rules that kind of ruled people's lives and i and i think in the novel i wanted to i i like the idea of of these characters who have to exist within this very prescribed system and how they can find, particularly the character of Anya, the main character, how she can kind of forge an identity within this system that allows for very little self-differentiation. So the system was in decay, profound decay, ruled over by men getting older and older. They'd probably given up much hope. The space race was over. One area where Russia seemed to one of the few areas where the Soviet Union successfully competed against the West was in athletics in, uh, and particularly in gymnastics, which is yes. the core of your book. You, as you yes. said at the beginning of our conversation, uh, you've always been passionate about gymnastics. So it mm -hmm. makes sense to fit this in, particularly given your interest in the Soviet Union. Were you uh, a gymnast when you were younger? I was. I was. And I and I. In fact, I'm still a gymnast. I went back to it in my 40s, and I, it's a great passion of mine. I love it. And my daughter is a competitive gymnast, so I spend a lot of time in and around the gym. So the, I actually wrote a lot of this novel, you know, kind of in the parent area of my daughter's gym. So I was surrounded by this uh, athleticism, which was awesome. Um, and I think that growing up, I was a huge fan of the Soviet gymnasts. Um, the Soviets won eight consecutive team gold medals uh, in the Olympic Games. So it's kind of an incredible dynasty. Um, and it's a, it's a very particular kind of gymnastics, one that we don't see anymore. Um, it was very much based in classical ballet, but also combined with these in, this kind of pushing the envelope and these innovative skills. And now gymnastics, I, I love it today as well, but it's a very different thing. I mean, the skill has gone way beyond what it was then but you've lost a little bit of that uh, particular style because it's not rewarded in the current um, way that gymnastics is scored. So you, you lose a little of that uh, flair that you see in the old Soviet gymnasts, which really, to me, I mean, they are phenomenal to watch. 
the flair you talk about, of course, was antithetical, foreign to everything else in the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, and it was rooted in ballet. Was there an element implicitly or otherwise of dissidence, do you think, in Soviet gymnastics? You know, it's interesting. I think that it was such a, a brutal system. It was a, a, the state system of athletics was, was an all-encompassing system where uh, children, in this case in gymnastics, children were competing for the glory of the state and, and fully believed it or, or believed it at least to a certain extent that that was their, their duty uh, to win for the motherland. So I do think it was this, it, it's interesting to, to think about this beauty coming out of, of a system that was very cruel and uh, kind of unbelievable that, that girls could live through it and do these amazing things coming out of it. Because I do think it requires, I think you can, you can't, you can make a, a very good athlete. I don't think you can make a great athlete. I think part of that greatness has to come from within the athlete herself. Um, and so you have this system and in the novel, Anya is kind of brought into this system, which is a great honor, but it also means giving up your life. It means giving up a childhood. It means uh, your body is in fact controlled by the coaches, which is you know, controlled by the state as well in this drive for gold medals. Um, so I do think there is a dissonance there that, that out of this bleakness can come such beauty. The one journalist, uh, the one gymnast, no, not journalist, gymnast that even I've heard of is Olga Corbett. Um, yeah. How much of the novel is pure fiction? How much of it is based on anecdotes or stealing piece, bits and pieces of stories from real Soviet gymnasts? Uh, it's definitely an amalgam. I, I use some real Soviet gymnasts in the work uh, who kind of come in and out as, as small players. Um, the main story that really got me going on this novel was the story of the gymnast Elena Mukina, who won the gold all around in the 1978 World Championships. And she was this great hope for the Soviet team as the Moscow Olympics loomed on the horizon in 1980. And then in training in 1979, she broke her leg and the, the, the coaches and the bureaucrats and everyone else pushed her to come back to training way too soon. And she was not physically in any shape to do it. And she was unable to do a lot of her skills and they started to panic before the Olympics. So they put in a skill into her routine that had thus far only been done by men. It's called the Thomas Salto. And it's really an incredibly dangerous skill. It's a, a one and a half back flip with a one and a half twist where you land in a forward roll. So you're basically landing on your head, neck, back or some combination. Um, and they were pushing her to do this to kind of raise the flashiness of her routine. And two weeks before the Olympics, she broke her neck in three places doing this, uh, doing the skill. And the Soviets launched into a, a campaign of cover up and misinformation to, to basically make her go away before the Olympics, which they, um, you know, I, I, certainly athletics and um, the push for gold was seen as a reflection of, of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union. And so they didn't want to have this stain on it with this um, gymnast with a broken neck. And, and really she was, it was an incredible campaign and they, they succeeded 
for the most part. Um, it wasn't until the Soviet Union fell that, that she gave a few rare interviews before she died and the story came out about what happened to her. But I think that that story to me was so chilling and, and sad. Um, and she, the main character is not based on her, but uh, um, a character later in the book, uh, another gymnast is based very heavily on Elena Mokina. But there are also some, some kind of cameos by uh, Olga Corbett and you know, Nadia and some other Soviet gymnasts. American gymnastics, of course, has been marked by appalling stories of sexual exploitation and criminality. Did you, did you include any of that? I assume it went on also in the Soviet time, given that the, the coaches, the people in charge were even less accountable than in the US system. Was this something that crept into the novel? Um, it creeps in a little bit, and I think anytime you have a, um, a sport where you have young girls and, and, and men uh, mixed together, it, it generally is something that, is, that has been an issue. And in the, in the, as far as the Soviet gymnast goes, obviously not, a, not much is talked about officially. There are certainly anecdotes that, that um, I have read and, and heard about, and I think with this you know, this power dynamic, it sets into motion something where there, nothing was ever talked about. Um, so it does creep in. It's not the, the kind of main thrust of the novel. But but yeah, I think that element of um, always a potential for something bad to happen when you have these situations. Um, so yeah, it definitely is a part of it. And, and unfortunately, it's it's been a part of uh, the culture of gymnastics for so long. And as we've seen, you know, most recently in the United States, where the stories have come out and, and the Larry Nassar scandal and all that. It's, it's really unfortunate um, that, and I, and, you know, I think things are, are changing for the better. Um, when you get to a level of elite sports, uh, particularly elite gymnastics, it's, it's um, I think there's still a fine line between what is demanded by a coach um, and what is necessary to, to reach the heights that they reach. And I, I think it is, uh, there's a fine line between abuse, I think, and uh, hard coaching. Did you, while you were writing the novel, did you think much about what was happening in America at the same time? You did a show with Kurt Wallace Johnson about Vietnamese immigration on the Gulf Coast in 1972, I think it was, and then with the the journalist Ronald Brown, Ron Brownstein, who wrote a book, Rock Me on the Water, 1974, um, the culture, the music, the movies. You know, uh, it's... Books it, of, of Los Angeles, very, you know, unimaginably different. Los Angeles in 1974 from Nora Lisk. But did you think about that? You know what? I, I, I purposefully, I did think about it in kind of abstract terms, but I purposefully immerse myself in in this in this era in the Soviet Union where so little was known and people lived within these very prescribed uh, borders and there was not a lot of open uh, certainly no open journalism and not a lot of access to to the outside world or to the United States um, and it's kind of shocking to think about um, you know I was born in 1971 and and this. Well, you were born it, in Brussels, though. You weren't born I was, in yes. I was born in Brussels. My parents lived there for a few years. Um, but it's funny that this is novel. It, you know, it takes place starting around when I was born, but it's historical fiction. <laughs> so I guess that's where that, you know, that where that puts me. Um, but I think also because the Soviet Union was such a, you know, it's a constraint. It, it has a, a definite 
end and beginning, even though, of course, you know, if we in the Putin area, Putin era, it, I would say it's not uh, fully dead. But um, this historical period is is fascinating. I mean, you don't have a lot of that in the modern era where you have a, a very, you know, it begins at one time and then it falls. And then you kind of have this world in between that that was, was almost its own little isolated island. And, and I think by setting the novel in Norilsk, which, which by itself was an isolation within an isolation, um, I, I, to me, it, it allowed for my fictional universe to take hold even more because it, it does have this feeling of eeriness. Um, it's almost polar, this kind of polar lunar landscape um, in the Arctic. And I think the even the element of the Northern Lights, which comes in, um, has this feel, this kind of otherworldly feeling, uh, and that to me, in in setting a novel, is is something that really allows me creatively to to move through it because I can I although I read a ton and and looked at as much as I could about Norilsk, it still had a a, a way that it set in my mind as a certain fictional fictional universe. Uh, Ray, you mentioned Collapse and Putin. Uh, we did a show with Vladislav Zubok. He has an excellent book, new book out called Collapse, the Fall of the Soviet Union, which is probably yeah. the best yeah. history yeah. of the collapse of, of the Soviet Union 20 or 15 years after your novel was written. Who mm -hmm. did you most rely on in, in, in historical terms? Obviously, you couldn't do much primary research. Who do you think of, has written best about the Soviet Union in the 70s. Well, you know what? I I was so inspired by um, Svetlana Alexeyevich's work. You know, that mm. she wrote Secondhand Time, and 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 that to me um, was so wonderful in getting those voices of the kind of the last generation of the Soviet Union. And and then I also um, there's a historian named Anne Applebaum who wrote kind of a yes, been on the, the show. Oh, she's fantastic. I mean, that book is just. The, this book about the gulag you know it's just this it's extraordinary um and to me those were wonderful sources i also found that watching now that that were you know as the years have gone gone by since the fall of the soviet union thing more and more gets released and i was able to watch a lot of old training films of soviet gymnasts um as well as old um meets and tournaments and and that kind of thing to really get that feeling um, and also the propaganda films that they made uh, that included the gymnastics teams, just to get a feel for what was presented and in relation to kind of what the real life was behind the stories for those gymnasts. Um, but yeah, I, I, I find it to be an incredibly fascinating history. And I think when you have, I, I'm no expert on Putin, but I, but when he has kind of lamented the fall of the Soviet Union, you know that there's something going on there. You know, you can't kind of dismiss it as as history. We've done some shows in which um, people have compared the United States to late Soviet Union. Harold James, the Princeton historian, uh, compared it explicitly. And then we had Fiona Hill on the show who worked for Donald Trump oh. and rebelled against him. Mm -hmm. uh, she makes the comparison in her new book, There Is Nothing For You Here. Was there an element of that in your books, believing I mean, I, that America was veering towards that kind of dark decline? Yeah, I think it's no accident that it that it um, was written in, you know, that I wrote this book uh, 
after Trump was elected. And, uh, and, I, and I do think that the people get um, used to the system that they live in. And it's kind of extraordinary that now when uh, a Republican politician refuses to accept a defeat in an election, uh, that that has become so commonplace, it, you know, that it kind of elicits eye rolls as opposed to, you know, five years ago, 10 years ago, when this would have been just completely unheard of. And I think this acceptance of the system that you live in is, is so interesting. And we do see it, how the United States has changed. Uh, Dostoevsky in a novel kind of famously talked about how uh, man was this creature who could adapt to anything and maybe that's what made him, you know, that was the difference between, made him human basically. Um, and I do think to a certain extent that's true. And in the novel, uh, we have different ways of adapting to different systems. You know, Vera has to adapt to her life in the gulag camp. And then we have Anya who has to adapt to this incredible regime that she lives in as a as an up-and-coming gymnast um, and then we also have this character of Anya's mother who who begins the novel in a mystery of her disappearance but she was a uh, a dancer for the Bolshoi and, and the the system that she has operated in she quickly she's the one of the two characters who comes to really uh, doubt her place within that system she used to be a believer and and she is no longer a believer um, so I do think that that's something that that the last 10 years have been shocking uh, in this country, how we are veering toward a certain acceptance of authoritarianism, which would have seemed unheard of not that long ago. It's not just the authoritarianism, it's the hard times of the 70s. We seem to sure. be returning to Helen Thompson, new book, uh, Disorder, also on the show, also shortlisted for the uh, FT Business Book of the Year Award. She reminds us of this. Um, so it's not just about political freedom. It's just the, right. sort of the general darkness, inflation, inequality, mm -hmm. grayness. Yeah, yeah no, definitely. Um, it is, uh, I think of it as a dark time. I mean, I, I, it's like certainly like no time that I have lived in uh, or, or been conscious of before. Um, and I think there is a general acceptance of darkness, which uh is sad uh and it and it is something that we have become accustomed to i hate that my children have become accustomed to it i think that they i have two daughters uh one who's 12 and one who's 15 and their 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 kind of awareness of uh america and um the time that they live in is is marred by by trump and covid and inflation which is uh, a shame, really. Ray, we've done lots of shows on Russian literature earlier this week. We did a show where the historian's written a book on Chekhov when Chekhov became Chekhov. Yeah. Chekhov was, of course, a great doctor who also traveled extensively in the Russia before the revolution, pre-Bolshevik pre uh, Russia, Russian uh, Empire. Many, many great realist novelists came out of both the Soviet Union and Russia. Did this novel and the writing of this novel, did it make you more intimate, more sympathetic, more appreciative of Russian literature? And do you think in a sense, uh, 
at least in terms of the ambition in the book, it turned you into a, a, a Soviet novelist? <laughs> well, I wouldn't claim to, to kind of take that lineage, but, but definitely inspired. I mean, I'm, I, uh, I think there's no way around the great uh, Russian literature and Soviet even, even, you know, I'm not, I'm not that widely read in, in Soviet literature because there was a lot of literature that came out during the Soviet time that was, the only thing that was allowed with that kind of had a propagandist feel to it. Um, but yeah, I, I love this, you know, the scope of, of much of Russian literature is incredible. And, and although the scope of Winterland isn't quite as broad, I do like the idea of generations, um, and multi-generations and kind of seeing the effect of history and even trauma on those generations. So when you when you have a character like Vera, who is in her 80s by by towards the end of the book, um, she has lived through, you know, she had a life before the revolution. She has lived through all these different stages of, of Soviet history and, and she can kind of be the the person who tells those stories and and um, I think there's nothing like, you know, I, I'm not, this is a historical novel in that it's very well researched and, and, and I want it to be authentic in that way. Um, but I think learning about history uh, through character is, is a, you know, you don't get, it's not a history lesson, but I think that to understand on a granular level what life was like. And I tried to bring that in with, with using Vera as both in her stories of, pre-revolutionary imperial Russia where she was an upper-class woman or girl at that point um, and contrast that with the life that she leads and kind of the um, the amazing history that she witnesses in one lifetime. It's a realist novel though, isn't it? Um, yeah. There's definitely. nothing surreal about it, nothing no. odd about it. Yeah. Is it in a particular tradition and are there novelists who you've always loved that you're trying to emulate in some way you know what I, I i don't think it emulates but i i read widely i mean i some of my favorite you know long time favorite books i i love to the lighthouse by virginia wolf and i love um this, this this kind of small book called last night at the lobster by Stuart onan and i there's certain things that I think stick with me as a writer, and I don't know if I emulate them, but I know that they come through. I'm also a very um, visual person, and I respond very much to photographs. And and uh, there. Have you seen this, the Brooks book, Life Under Communism? I think you'd enjoy. No, it. I. When you were talking about it, I was thrilled. I'm going to. Cold War album, you know, he, yeah, he's I'm a going, brilliant American photographer. Spent a lot of time there. I'm going to look it up right away. There, the you know, Norilsk, as you said, is a closed city, so you can't go unless you have permission from the Russian government to go. Um, but there is one photographer who I found really useful. Um, her name is Elena Cherniskova, um, mm. and she took these incredibly haunting photos in Norilsk. She's she's modern. She's she took these photos in in the 2000s. Um, but that to me. Uh, really sparked my imagination because the, the seeing the visual of this very uh, drab Soviet buildings, but kind of with these extreme uh, landscapes of winter and huge sky and the lights and the kind of the life that, that people live when they live in Norilsk, uh, to me, 
instantly clicked and I wanted to kind of use that and kind of smash that together with the story of gymnastics in a way to make it to make it work. Um, but yeah, I think it was essential to me to have a to pick a landscape that was I mean, I, I can't write with authority about um, someone living in Moscow, but I felt like I could write with a fair amount of authority uh, about someone living in Norilsk. Final question, Ray. Dumb question, but I'll reserve it till the end. Uh, what about the gymnastic quality of your prose? Is there a connection between your interest in gymnastics and your interest in writing? Do you think gymnasts make good writers or writers good gymnasts? That's a lovely question. I haven't thought about it, but I, to me, going back to gymnastics as, a, uh, as an adult has brought an element of joy and uh, the ability to free myself up a little bit. I'm, a, I'm in my 50s. I'm not going to be a, uh, on the national team. But if I can keep improving at something and not feel the constraints of expectation, uh, I think that's marvelous. And I, I would hope as I get older and continue to write that that also comes into play, that I feel less constrained by a lot of things by what people think or what the expectation is uh, for my writing. So I do think it, I do think it's connected uh, in that way, certainly in a, in a kind of phase of life way. Excellent.